Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's virtual event. This afternoon, May 9th, 2022, we discuss how the largest whistleblower award in history came about. My name is Ryan Lacey, and I'm an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of our experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent speaker in David Covell, who is being interviewed by Gary Kalbaugh, whom I will introduce briefly. Gary Kalbaugh is a Deputy General Counsel and Director at ING Financial Holdings Corporation and Special Professor of Law at Maurice A. Dean School of Law in Hofstra University. His practice areas include derivatives and banking law. Previously, he served as Executive Director, Counsel, and Chief U.S. Data Protection Officer at West LB, chairing West LB's Global Dodd-Frank and Underwriting Task Forces. Calvo received his Master of Laws from the University of Pennsylvania in 1999 and his BCL from the National University of Ireland, University College Cork in 1998. After our speakers give their remarks, we will turn to you, the audience, for questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we will handle questions as we can towards the end of today's program. With that, thank you for being with us today. Gary, the floor is yours. Great, well, thank you, Ryan. When I first met David, I was in an organization at the New York City Bar, the Futures and Derivatives Law Committee, which was largely people more on the defense side of, of things. And my conversations with David blew my mind because he opened doors and ways of thinking of things that candidly, I just hadn't been exposed to. Uh, when we look at David's biography, it's very hard to go through it because it's just dwarfed by the fact that he's, he's a lawyer whose client got the single largest rec, uh, whistleblower award in history, uh, $200 million award, which we're going to talk about today. But we can't let that distract us from the underlying reality that for, for you know well over a decade, David is, is probably the most prominent plaintiff's attorney in the derivatives area. And, and I, can, I know not everybody on this call in this webinar is in the derivatives bar, but I can say he's he's one of the most respected lawyers in the derivatives bar. And uh, I also have to note, he played professional soccer in Nicaragua. How awesome is that? You don't get that very often. And so maybe David, my first question to you has nothing to do with our topic today. How did that come about? Well, good morning or good afternoon now. Um, thanks for that introduction, Gary. Uh, it was, it's an exaggeration. I don't know how I'm viewed in, in the, the derivatives bar, to be honest. Um, Gary, that's news to me, so I, I appreciate the compliment. I think it's an exaggeration. Um, likewise, my, my, my professional career in soccer in Nicaragua lasted for about a year and a half. Um, and for those who know soccer, they know that Nicaragua is not the most the biggest powerhouse in Latin America when it comes to soccer. So I, I, I was able to hold my own, but I, um, and I made money, they paid me. But most of the people who were on my team uh, were part of the mili the Sandinista military. So they were paid by the military. I just got paid cash. <laughs> I, I, you know what, David? We're going to have to schedule a whole different webinar <laughs> to go into this one because there's so many questions on the tip of my tongue. We do have to uh, talk about this whistleblower award, uh, which is equally interesting. Your client 
you know, I'll, I'll start with, with, you know, the big elephant in the room. Your client received the largest whistleblower award in history. It totaled nearly $200 million. How did that come about? So um, just uh, one clarification. This is the largest whistleblower award paid to any individual. They're, they're under the False Claims Act, which is an analog or somewhat analogous whistleblower uh, statute. Uh, others have gotten more, uh, but it was divided up to a number of people. But this is the largest single award of any whistleblower ever, which I was, I've been told by people who actually know more about this than I do. I, I, re- I, did about- research it. I did research it a bit to make sure that no individual, and I am not able to discover any individual that, that is at that level. So it came about in part because of, well, entirely, I suppose, because of Dodd-Frank. Uh, Dodd, Dodd-Frank uh, brought forth a whistleblower um, law, a whistleblower statute that allows whistleblowers to bring violations of uh, securities laws and violations of commodities laws to the, the appropriate authorities and to collect um, what may be um, termed a bounty of 10 to 30 percent um, if they are um, help successful in helping these agencies, the SEC on the one hand, and then the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission on the other, uh, collect fines. And then, of course, if others also collect fines, other regulators also collect fines, they can collect from that. Um, the Dodd-Frank imposed or brought up, came, you know, the, the whistleblower provisions in Dodd-Frank came about, I think, because of the financial crisis and also because of the Madoff scandal, which was an embarrassment for the SEC because they didn't catch um, the scandal early on and there had been a whistleblower. The idea was to create this these statutes to allow a, a really programmatic um, approach to uh, to whistleblowers, so that good good information from whistleblowers wouldn't be lost, and to incentivize whistleblowers to come forward. Well, um, so I could get into detail about my case too, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, but yeah that's sort of the one, one note, if I if I could, on the Dodd Frank Act, just for all of our listeners, and many of you probably know this, the Dodd Frank Act just passed in two thousand and ten, and it regulated the derivatives industry in ways that are comparable, I would say a level of regulation comparable to existing federal regulation of the securities industry. And as David noted, it was motivated by the financial crisis. And this is the first time I've, I've been able to draw a line between Madoff and, and the whistleblower provisions of Dr. Frank Jack. So thank you for, for, for that. Uh, so, well, I guess we'll, we'll get into the, the facts of, of kind of how the whistleblower claim came into your hands and procedurally how, how you handled it. But, but what, you know, not everybody may know what the Commodity Futures Trading Commission is, which we'll, we're going to refer to as a CFTC, so we don't have to say it 50 million times, but that stands for the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, what what are they and, and how does their whistleblower program ordinarily work? Well, so the, the CFTC is um, maybe the, the step the step sibling to, to the SEC um, in terms of prominence. But in terms of its mandate, it, it regulates huge, huge amounts of the, the, the economy. And as, as you said, Gary, it regulates derivatives. It regulates uh, um, primarily futures on exchanges, but also now the derivatives that are, um, that are associated with those exchanges as well. Um, and to a certain degree, commodities that underlie um, all of those derivatives. It's sort of a freak of nature. It's over overseen by the uh, USDA, and I mean freak of nature, not pejoratively. It, it comes from you know butter exchanges and wheat exchanges, all of the 
natural pr commodity products that were part of the U.S. economy in the 1800s and has slowly developed into a regulator that has um, sophisticated financial regulatory authority. So um, historically, it was under the USDA, and it was in 1974, an independent commission came out. But you're noting the, the origins were deeply, deeply agricultural, right? Without any, any contemplation of, of regulating financial instruments. That's right. The, um, the regulation of the financial instruments has slowly developed over time as, as the futures markets and the, and the derivatives markets have become more dominated by, by financial derivatives. So how does the CFTC's whistle program normally operate? Well, the CFTC and the SEC both have their own whistleblower offices um, with, with staff there. And um, there's a, a, their, their mandate is to do a number of things. One, the, the main thing they do is do intake of uh, whistleblower submissions. And then they, um, they make sure that those submissions get to, um, get to enforcement staff. The whistleblower office is not uh, directly enforcement. Um, although they're in that office. And then they, um, they also um, help interface with whistleblowers to a certain degree, although that mostly is taken over by enforcement. And whistleblowers are bringing forth um, usually assertions, facts, uh, allegations of misconduct. Um, and so there's a filtering process that occurs over time, but the CFTC whistleblower office will always be involved in that, um, in that process. And importantly, is usually involved with some exceptions in the payout of whistleblower awards, the analysis of whether whistleblowers should be paid at all. So what happened? Did somebody come into your office one day and say, you know, something bad really happened? I mean, you know, what can I do about it? How, how, did, how does something like this come about? Good question. And um, just uh, to preface, uh, um, my, uh, my ability to talk about this case is somewhat limited by my, my client's interest in remaining confidential. So I, I will be a little bit circumspect. But, but, but as you noted, Gary, I, I've been involved in uh, derivatives cases for a long time, litigation, and on the plaintiff's side, um, which um, is, is, is where, I, where I've um, made my profession, my career in litigation. So uh, I had a number of uh, derivative cases and a number of contacts in the industry. And through actually through a, a Wall Street Journal reporter, I um, uh, probably the one who broke the LIBOR story the, um, in the first instance in 2008, um, I, got a, I got a referral. And it was, I mean, as a whistleblower um, uh, you know, attorney, uh, it's always a real big question how you're gonna get, get cases. And I cannot answer that question. But um, but this one was uh, was a nice it was a nice referral from a Wall Street Journal report. Well, well, now we know how you get cases because anybody who Google's whistleblower CFTC is going to see. But yes, it, it, that's so that's amazing. So as a Wall Street Journal reporter um, reached out to you because I would think a lot of people won't even know that they can be a whistleblower. I mean, it, it's it's a little bit abstruse or abstract for for most people. Well, actually, that, that was the point back then, for sure. So um, this was, you know, almost a decade ago when I was uh, I first introduced the whistleblower. And I didn't know it had come from the, the Wall Street Journal reporter that I found out later, by the way. That, at that time, the Dodd-Frank whistleblower statutes had, you know, were very new and very few people knew about them. And in, even to this day, fewer, few people know about them. But, or, but I think that's changing with, you know, when you get eye-popping results um, that, are, that are headlined, there, there tends to be a little bit more attention 
um, given to to whistleblowers. So I, I think that's changing. But for the certainly for the first five to eight years of the program, it was very it wasn't very well known. Um, whistleblowers can go to this directly to CFTC, directly to the SEC. They don't need lawyers. But um, but I personally would highly recommend that they use lawyers. Um, we'll we'll get to that. I mean, if your client yeah. didn't have a lawyer, your client would would not have gotten this claim, and, and we'll get to that. Um, but b- before we get to that. Um, you do owe that Wall Street Journal reporter lunch or dinner. I, I hope you know that. Um, but second, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> and secondly, um, so what was the next step? So now you're in touch with this person. This person says, you know, I was giving her name. What What do you do next? Is the next thing, you know, you, do you go straight to the CFTC? What, what's the next step? Do you investigate well, first? Yes. I mean, when you t- when you do intake for, uh, for with a whistleblower, you, you spend you try to spend a lot of time investigating. It so happened that the whistleblower who came to me knew uh, I knew a lot about the area that the whistleblower was talking about. Um, um, and frankly, I also knew that the CFTC was already investigating. And so I was quite dubious at the time about whether I should we should wait what I thought would might be a waste of time bringing the case to the to the CFTC. But, um, but the whistleblower convinced me that the information that the whistleblower had was such that it would, you know, it could, you know, be extremely helpful to the to the CFTC. Um, and ultimately, I was convinced uh, to put together what was a, a you know, um, a, what, what looks like, uh, like like a complaint, although we try to make it look more like a summary judgment motion, which is sort of peppered with evidence at the same time. And, and legal analysis, and we put that together for for the CFTC, and and we submitted it, um, knowing that they were already investigating the derivative um, market in question. Well, how how can it be a whistleblower claim if the CFTC is already investigating it? I mean, isn't a whistleblower claim normally like no one knows about this, and now I'm the first to bring it to to the regulator's attention? Yeah, I mean that's a good question, and that was uh, the heart of a lot of the um, the trouble that ensued after we submitted <laughs> this. But um, but the, the the simple answer is there are really two ways a whistleblower can uh, get paid and get credit for, from the CFTC for bringing a uh, or the SEC for bringing uh, for bringing uh, to their attention uh, information, and the information is brought in something called a TCR, a tip complaint or referral. It's just a official acronym. Um, and name, but when they bring that, if they are, um, if they, I guess the, the term is if they were the the sort of the, the but for cause of the initiation of the uh, of an investigation, they're pretty much you know going to get credit as long as there's a, a result that you know that means that there's money that comes to the CFTC. And the other way is if they significantly contribute. Uh, to an investigation that is already ongoing, and that's a bit more amorphous. It's discretionary, and it um, it involves, especially the way the CFTC works now and the SEC too, a, a fair amount of hindsight, you know, analysis, which um, which can cause hindsight bias, which I think appeared in our case at least initially. But um, but our client um, and I, we weren't, sh- you know, we weren't certain that there was an investigation into the particular uh, targeted issue. It was a big bank, um, but we were. We knew that there was an investigation generally into banks about this derivative um, and these derivative um, benchmarks. Um, and we had enough information that we thought that we were going to help significantly contribute to the um, to the results of the CFTC. 
So, so if I could just briefly again for our listeners, uh, David mentioned benchmarks. I think most of you are probably familiar with the variety of scandals. The most famous one related to LIBOR benchmarks, but that's not the only ones. There's ones related to metals. There's there's a variety of scandals where industries rely on benchmarks set sometimes by a finite group of individuals that are prominent dealers in, for example, the commodity or in, in LIBOR, um, in setting LIBOR. And the in a lot of those cases, it was actually judicially determined that manip manipulation occurred, and that some of those people were suborned and, and provided things that were not the good faith items that they should have provided in creating these base rates. I mean, some of these base rates are, you know, LIBOR was a multi-trillion dollar market. So these are as big as they get in the financial world. And to see them be undermined and suborned was a tumultuous event. And 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 I, I don't know if, if this claim was a LIBOR related one or if you could even talk about it. And I understand if you can't, but I just want to provide people those benchmarks also occur in the metals markets and in a variety of markets. This was a large financial benchmark, and there aren't that many that resulted in you know billions and billions of dollars of recovery for the governments. I mean that, and that's that's why, frankly, our the, the whistleblower got so much money. It's because the government got about two billion dollars or more, uh, actually. So you can do them. You can sort of figure it out. But it's it was a very big financial benchmark, and there are only a couple of them that were involved. What we found out um, as we you know provided the information, we we did what. Typically happens in these um, in these situations. We were able to um, speak with the CFTC and meet with with, with them, um, and then ultimately, and this took a few months, um, but ultimately, the uh, we were contacted by a federal regulator uh, who's not named in, um, in a, not named, but we were contacted by the federal regulator, and um, and that federal re regulator we we met with uh, a, a large number of times, um, and and even you know. Um, in person back in the day when you did that and the FBI we met with and the CFTC multiple more times. So it was, it, 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 it ultimately blossomed the, um, by the way, the whistleblower, to the extent people are nerds, there's a, you can look this up, but the CFTC whistleblower award, um, there's a determination that's public. It's redacted. It's called CFTC whistleblower award determination number NO period 21 dash WB dash zero seven. And that's, um, it's available on the um, on the CFTC website. That's what discusses this particular award. Is that 21B um, or V? 21-WB, as in whistleblower, dash 07. Got it. And there's a whole process by which, I mean, I, we can get into it at, at some point, but once once the regulators, the, say the CFTC issues a fine and collects on it, there's a, a process by which you make an award application. You have, I think, 90 days to put in that application. You have to... You have to dot the I's and cross the T's if you really want to get the money. And what triggers that is something called a covered action. So whenever, if you look on the CFTC website, you'll see every now and then they, they have notice of covered actions. And those are to alert whistleblowers potentially. Not always, because covered actions can be without whistleblowers. But there are usually settlements or some kind of regulatory actions that have resulted in money for the CFTC. And whistleblowers can apply for uh, their awards based on those alerts. So you you submitted this, which was similar to a motion of summary judgment and stylistically, right? Not procedurally. And you submitted that and you met with all these agencies 
And right after your meetings, they wrote you a $200 million check and you all went home. Yeah. Uh, if that had happened, it would have happened sometime in 2013, I think, <laughs> or 14. Um, so, and, and, and all joking aside, actually, you know, this, um, this was a long haul and it's, you know, uh, I'm a lawyer and I do, uh, I have a decent practice, but for the whistleblower, especially whistleblowers generally who get um, blacklisted, which happens um, sort of as a matter of course, if they're found out, uh, it can be very hard. And for, in this particular case, it was very, very, very hard for the whistleblower issue. And it went on and on and there was no certainty, even up till um, the last minute, we didn't really have certainty about whether we were um, going to be have to be successful, and the ultimate award came out. Uh, the determination came out in October, last October. Uh, I think it was public. We found out about it October fifteenth. I think it became public the following week. So, uh, so yeah, we so we met in two thousand thirteen or so, maybe a little later, with regulators um, from from the CFTC and from a fe- what's known as a federal regulator. If you look at the public version of that determination, and um, and then things went silent. And then uh, about a year and a half or two, maybe two years later, there was a big settlement um, between regulators, including a foreign regulator and um, and the CFTC as well, a federal regulator, the CFTC and a foreign regulator, big numbers. Um, and it, we, uh, we had reason to believe that it was associated with our contribution. We, um, we filed an, uh, an award application. There was a notice of covered action, as I said, that came out um, and we filed associated with that notice. We filed within 90 days, our award application. Six years went by <laughs> still after that, <laughs> but or close to six, maybe five. Um, so, but, so if uh, I could, yes, yeah, so then, David, if you hadn't sure. filed within that 90 day period, if you hadn't been scanning for that notice of claim, uh, notice of covered action, excuse me, and you missed it or something, and 90, 91 days had passed, would your clients have had no claim? There's the CFTC, I think, has discretion to, um, to you know, go beyond the 90 days. I don't think it's, a, as they would say in litigation jurisdictional, I don't think it knocks you out right as a, you know, but I think you are beyond backfooted. You better have a good reason not to have filed in those 90 days. If it's just, you know, negligent malpractice, something like that, you got to, you, you probably won't get it. Um, so if, if there's a good reason, they, they have discretion to allow uh, claims, award applications beyond the 90 days. Right. But I, we'll get to this. It was somewhat, somewhat controversially in some quarters, the CFTC paying this amount. So I can't imagine if they had discretion that they would have exercised that, exercised that discretion in your client's favor, but we can get to that Our, the client went personally down to washington and delivered the application let's put it that way um because we wanted to make sure it was delivered on time <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot was riding on that so so you, you delivered the application and then you heard absolutely nothing for about uh three years two and a half or three years you didn't, you didn't just you were calling them in that time right you were saying hey were they stonewalling you? What were you getting answers? There was a time when I think the whistleblower office was a little bit, I mean, it, it, it's developed over time and gotten to be much more efficient. And I have very high regard for the whistleblower office, by the way, um, despite some of the stories I've, 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 I'm going to tell, but uh, they were, I think they were jammed up. There are a lot of frivolous award applications that occur and that caused a real backlog. Um, so among other reasons, 
they were they were highly delayed because of these frivolous applications, which required a lot of time. They've since streamlined it so that they can exclude a bunch of really, you know, facially um, frivolous uh, applications. Um, and so they've gotten faster. But I think they also had real trouble with the numbers at issue here. We were, you know, our, our client, on behalf of our client, we were asking for a huge amount of money. And I think that really um, affected a, an agency which doesn't really deal with those kinds of numbers normally. Um, and this was a this was sort of an exception, or at least the beginning of a, a number of exceptions associated with some real strong regulatory action by the CFTC after the financial crisis. So I think I think the whistleblower office itself was a little bit um, kind of not by what to do here. And we couldn't, as I said earlier, we couldn't say that our that the whistleblower had started the investigation. We knew it it hadn't. So so then there was a lot of discretion. We you know in my mind there was a lot of discretion in the whistleblower office about how to um, determine whether the, the the whistleblower had significantly contributed to the um, to the investigation. Um, so when uh, I think a few years after, after about three years, we got uh, an incredibly depressing uh, preliminary determination, which isn't public. It's something that you receive to an award application and you're given the opportunity to contest it internally at the CFTC. So it's like an administrative appeal internally at the, at the CFTC. So we got a negative determination with, an, with, a, with a declaration, with an affidavit by someone at the CFTC that said uh, more or less that our client, although they had provided information, hadn't you know done enough or something like that. Um, and we contested, and uh, we asked for a, a, broad, a bigger record. We we tried to depose that that anonymous CFTC person. We um, we also uh, sought out the federal regulator, whom we met with many times, because the federal regulator, not the CFTC, had been the, our main point of contact for for a lot of these um, meetings and had done we from our our impression was they had led the, the charge on this so we we reached out and um, and put together what we thought was a much better um, uh, better claim uh, we were able to contest a lot of the things that was set were said in that affidavit and in that determination um, and then things got tied up in knots yet yet further later on. We got the indication fairly fairly quickly about it within a year after we contested internally. We got the indication that 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 the CFTC was to its credit turning around and going to agree with us after having spoken with that federal federal regulator um, and after having done it, done more investigation. And that was that was refreshing. And then things went radio silent for about a year and a half <laughs> because because we broke the CFTC. <laughs> We'll talk about that. Yeah. So, so when you when you you have this internal hearing at the CFTC, is this with an administrative law judge? It's not. It's not. It's much less formal than that. And that's what um, I, I, if I have a beef with the program, it, it 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 makes it pretty hard to know what's going on. It's 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 pretty uh, opaque. Uh, you uh, you file it. Uh, you contest it by filing with the whistleblower office. So essentially, the same people who who made the initial determination. Um, the preliminary determination. You you file you you contest it. You're able also to ask for what they relied on, but that's all often very curtailed from what um, what what the record we think should be, we thought should be. 
Um, you can also ask to meet with the people and we did. Um, so we went down to DC and met with them, but then you just sort of throw, you throw your, you contest it and you throw it into a black box and then you're, you're, you know, constantly calling up and saying, Hey, you know, are you guys making a decision? And, um, and it's, these decisions come through, there's a, there's a stat, there's a whole process. There's an I think initial analysis by the whistleblower office. And then, then there's a, what's called a claims review staff who can look at it. And then after that, it would be um, the, the commissioners themselves of the CFTC will sign off on it. Usually by doing nothing, it's usually as a you know, sort of operation of law. It just becomes um, a final determination ultimately. Um, and, uh, but they are allowed to ask for the record. Um, in, and in one instance in history, they have done that. Um, I, I think in it. And I experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of history making. Um, by the way, I see some great questions coming in. Please keep them coming in. We are going to reserve time at the end and we'll ask those questions. So so if I'm not addressing your question now, um, please know that it will be addressed. Uh, great questions coming in. So, all right. So so that, that anonymous CFTC employee, did you ever succeed in deposing him or her? No, no. And I, I actually, I, we did it in a way that I, I thought was more was delicate in the sense that um, we told them we were going to ask to depose this person. And the main idea was uh, that we would develop a record that showed that we couldn't develop a record, right? When they refused, which they did to pr produce this person for a deposition, we were going to have that as a piece of evidence that we couldn't depose this person when we appeal. So if, if the final determination, after you contest, if you lose again, then we were fortunate enough not to lose again. But if you do lose again, your only recourse then is to go to uh, uh, the Court of Appeals. You yeah. can go to the Court of Appeals where you're, uh, where the whistleblower is located or the DC circuit. Um, so we were preparing that, that ask for a, a deposition was really just preparing to say, you know, there wasn't enough information in the record and there should have been more. Sure, so you were just preparing for that eventuality. You never had to go there. Um, but my understanding, David, so you mentioned the last year and a half. So they say, they tell you, you know what? You guys were right all along. Sorry for all the trouble we gave you. And then a year and a half, they go silent. I'm going to make a guess as to why they went silent. Because you bankrupted the whistleblower office. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I technically not, no, but yes, <laughs> you know, practically so the whistleblower office is funded um, by uh, a consumer protection fund. I think it's called CPF. I think that's what it's called. And it, um, it tops off at a hundred million dollars. Um, so even if the CFTC, as in our case, collects far more than a hundred million dollars, the whistleblower award, ha the whistleblower hasn't been awarded anything yet. And so the money will flow into this fund, but then Anything above, if there's a steady state, anything above the hundred million pours pours into the um, into the, uh, the the treasury, and so all that's left, all all that's left, is a hundred million dollars in the fund. Um, and the other thing to know is that this, that the whistleblower office itself is funded through that same fund, so they're paying out whistleblowers and they're paying their salaries, and that was a great thing for them when um, like when the government shut down and everyone was furloughed, actually the whistleblower office of the CFTC wasn't because they had their own funding. So they kept being paid. They watered everyone's plants, they tell me, at the CFTC. But 
that became a problem when there was this potential. And I, we didn't know if, with any certainty what was going on, but we understood that there were problems. Uh, we thought we were going to get a good response, but then, it, then everything went radio silent. And, um, and then we sort of, it sort of slowly occurred, occurred to us that, um, that there was a risk that that fund would um, be depleted completely. And then um, the consequence of that, we found out, um, was that the whistleblower office itself would shut down. So there was a real, um, uh, just a complete freeze up of all of the whistleblower awards that were going out. And uh, because there was this potential, and I think at that time it really was a potential, I'm not sure they had decided anything with our case, but a potential that the whistleblower um, fund would be depleted, the CPF. And, uh, and then- Oh, after you did, sorry, go ahead. I was I was just going to say you know this this caused huge amounts of problems um, for this I mean for the whistleblower office more, as much as for I mean well, our client was in desperate straits but um, but for the it was it was existential for the whistleblower office and they had to get a get a a fix uh, a legislative fix in order to uh, continue to operate um, which they did uh, in the summer of 2021 they were able to get bipartisan support to to set aside some money for the whistleblower office. And separate and apart from what was in the fund, um, but that 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 the the the, pro, the program is still broken because that's going to sunset at, I think at the end of this year. Um, so so they're going to be back in the same spot if they ever have big whistleblower awards. But what essentially happened was that the whistleblower office shut down, stopped working, while they tried to figure out how to address this. So that's it. Seems that that would be an additional claim if you had to go to an article three court right you know that there's a conflict of interest here if, if they deny you is is that fair or, or no I th- that was a position I, I i personally don't agree with it but that was a position that was taken at the cftc that the whistleblower office because they um the office itself would be bankrupt would be you know put out of business if the fund was depleted they would be conflicted and not want to give large you know awards out and so the, um, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of these big awards then were turned over to, um, you know, sort of less conflicted parts of the, of the CFTC, as I understand it. Um, and other people did. And I think with our case, especially because the numbers were so big, they sort of did a de novo review of what, of, of everything we'd submitted. And we had to, you know, I think do more presentations. Um, so, so there was a, even after the, even after the fix, there was still a new analysis of, of the application, I think because the numbers were just so huge. Yeah, it's very hard. I, I got to imagine if I put myself in the shoes of somebody at the CFTC, it's very hard to be the, the guy who's going to sign that check and say, you know, yeah, this is, I mean, it, it is a lot of money. And so we can understand, I think, and sympathize with the hesitation, but did your client get interest? No interest. No. I mean, we didn't need, I mean, we thought about asking for it, but we thought that would be the height of chutzpah once we figured out we were going to get something, you know? So we didn't ask, ask for interest, but I mean, it's a good point. I mean, the, the, in, I mean, I, I'm not saying that in retrospect, it, it makes sense, but, but there is a, a huge amount of time and a huge amount of uncertainty. As I said, our client, you know, up until mid October really had no idea that they would ever get anything because, because all we had was this preliminary determination, which said they didn't help. Um, so it was, it was risky and it took a long time. And, but what, what the, the rules do say is that, and it's that you are under most conditions, if you, if you are a, a successful whistleblower, 
you um, you will get 10 to 30 percent. So that is not, and, and we think that we argue that I think that it's not that is not um, discretionary. So you know, although we weren't getting interest, we thought if we were going to be successful, we were going to get a lot of money because there was a lot of money at stake here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the statements of one of the CFTC commissioners, Don Stump, at the time of the whistleblower award, I believe she she issued a critical statement of the whistleblower award. Uh, what what is the gist of of the criticism that she offered? Yeah, so um, so in this in this whistleblower award determination, there were th- there were three buckets of money. One was the CFTC, what it recovered. One was what a federal regulator recovered, and one was what a um, a foreign regulator recovered. And the, uh, the the reason why is because the CF the, the whistleblower provisions provide that if there's a related action, something that's related to whatever you provided to the CFTC in this instance, that that whatever fine that is uh, obtained by that um, related action, the federal regulator or the foreign federal foreign regulator, that will that uh, 10 to 30% bounty will be paid on that award as well. So even though the CFTC didn't collect the money from the, that the foreign regulator got or that the federal regulator got, they still had to pay 10 to 30% of what was obtained by those two entities, by those two regulators. And the commissioner Stump, who um, took issue with that one part of the decision, in particular, I think she was quite uh, unhappy that there was a determination that um, that our client would get um, money for money that money would get a percentage of a recovery that didn't even go into the United States coffers. It went to a foreign regulator. I mean, I think that's the policy behind um, the displeasure. And um, the, her her statement, I think, brings up a couple of issues. I mean, we we spoke about this early earlier, Gary, but you know, she thought that the CFCC should exercise its discretion not to pay a related action for that foreign regulator. In other words, not to pay our client a percentage of whatever that foreign regulator obtained, despite the fact that, and I think she conceded that our our client had provided the information that had been provided to that regulator and the regulator had acted upon it um, to some degree at least. But the problem we had, and this was um, a real issue for us because we were considering, we thought we might have to appeal to the circuit, uh, to the DC circuit, was that you know the statute itself doesn't have that language of discretion. The the the, um, the regulations that govern uh, this this idea that ten to thirty percent of a related action is um, is going to be going to whistle, going to a whistleblower. Those that regulate the regulations say that uh, the the CFTC may provide um, to, that the, that ten to thirty percent goes to the whistleblower. The, Wait, the, statute, so the statute says must. And the regulation says may. The statute says shall. Um, yep. The statute says shall shall pay the related action, um, among other things. But ten to thirty percent of the related action shall. And the and the regs say may. And um, and so Commissioner Stump was relying on the regs, which give a lot more discretion to the CFTC, and in this case, a lot more power to the CFTC. I mean, normally that kind of power is exercised, I would think, from the left rather than from the right. And she was a Republican, but in this, but in this instance, I think she wanted the CFTC to have more authority to prevent and to have more discretion to prevent money being paid to whistleblowers when the money wasn't coming to the U.S. So I've got to ask, David, because it does strike me initially as odd. 
What is the public policy behind that statute? Why would why would the U.S. be paying a whistleblower for who whistleblows wrongdoing in another country? Well, it's a good question. Um, and I, the, the necessary predicate is always that the CFTC is also um, recovering. So you can't get a foreign you can't get a 10 to 30 percent from a foreign regulator if the CFTC hasn't used the same information and gotten its own, you know, two cents really 2 million or whatever. I think the idea behind it is to encourage whistleblowers to, you know, it's an acknowledgement. I think that it's an, these markets are international and that whistleblowers should be incentivized to make sure that regulators in all jurisdictions, not just in the U S go after misconduct. That's my own overlay. I don't, you know, the, the legislative history, I think probably will pro- provide more, more context than more accurate context maybe than I can, but that's, that's my sense. You know, there is, I can, I see the counter argument. I, I just want to say in our, in our case, the, the CFTC, you know, made much, much more than the $200 million that our client got, even with the payment of the related action to the federal regulator and to the foreign regulator. So this is, it's a bit of a, I think, an academic argument that there's going to be some, you know, huge payment, of, you know, for overseas regulations. But but I would also say that the CFTC is fairly liberal in the sense of what it what it construes as a related action. The SEC's rules are much more constrained, so it's not, and that's all done through the regs. Um, and it's it's worth looking at if you're if you're ever going to do <laughs> whistleblower practice, you should be careful about what is a related action and it differs between the SEC and the CFTC. Oh, very helpful. So so was that. Commissioner Stump's primary criticism, or did she have other critiques, or was that pretty much her own criticism? Her only criticism. That was main, that was her main criticism that there was um, that this foreign this. I mean, I, she she um, maligned our client a little bit, the whistleblower a little bit, by saying that it wasn't what they provided wasn't that great, or you know, it was it was good, but it wasn't great, you know, something like that. I don't remember exactly what she said. But um, but she said in that context, the CFTC should exercise discretion and and not pay money for what would what for money for you know regulatory enforcement and that flowed overseas. I don't think she had uh, at, you know officially in that statement much more um, in terms of uh, an attack on on the results. I you know I think there was just generally some sticker shock at the two hundred million, and I you know reading between the lines, she may have been interested in you know, lowering that number or the almost 200 million, I guess I should say. Um, but I don't, but I think, you know, I think she put, uh, she put forth a legitimate argument. I think it was based on, um, uh, improper administrative, just, you know, uh, aggrandizement of power, but, um, but, but she did put together, I think a, a proper argument. It was, it was actually interesting because we didn't know about this foreign regulator, how much the foreign regulator had relied on our client. Until we saw this, the state her statement and the and the the, the award determination, and we thought, wow, that's a lot more than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, David, you took you took seven years of risk here. Your client, I assume, is underemployed or unemployed during a lot of this period. And do you believe, in hindsight, that the whistleblower program worked as it should? I mean, I think the answer is yes and no. I mean, first on a, in a, in a broad brush way, I mean, they, this, they need to fix this, um, this funding of the whistleblower office so that they're not 
you know, tied to the ups and downs of this fund, which may pay out large whistleblower awards. They just need to do, fix that. So in that sense, um, they did a small fix and it worked, but it, it's only a patch. It needs to be finally done through legislation. Um, you know, the we you know, I think we were the victim of our own success in the sense that there's so much money at stake here and the initial preliminary determination, which uh, didn't give us what we wanted, I think was based on a lot of hindsight, that hindsight bias that could have been, um, you know, that, so I, so I, so I think that was a, you know, that, that was the negative side of things. But what I do think is the CFTC really did honestly turn back to this and look at it and do a, do a full analysis. I think they've learned a lot um, from this process, our, this one, just this one award, and they've got lots more. And I, I know this; they've got lots more that are coming, coming, coming to fruition now. I think it is. I think. It, I think it is working. I think they just need to fix this problem, um, get all of this this quote unquote conflict between the office and their providing money to the whistleblowers has has, has to be fixed. So, so you know, I, and I also want to note, David, this circumstance is anomalous, right? you know, having such a large award that's way larger than what the whistleblower fund had. I, I don't believe that these are circumstances that ordinarily present themselves in whistleblower claims. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. I mean, it's a, it's, this is a two-edged sword. I mean, the, the 200 million, as I said, has sticker shock. It's got real, you know, sex appeal too for, for would-be whistleblowers, which, you know, depending on your, your bent, because it's good or bad. Um, but it also isn't, shouldn't be used as a, a means of determining policy because it's such it is such an anomaly. It's not like that's going to be the the, the norm at the CFTC and how the whistleblower office you know performs. So I have way more questions for you, and normally I wouldn't go to questions at the twelve minute left mark, but we have so many questions that I just want to do justice to them, and they're excellent questions. So. And, and, you know, I do have, uh, hopefully I'll have time to ask you a couple more questions. But the first one is from Jeffrey Wood. Do these actions parallel federal quitom actions generally? What are the similarities or differences? Um, so that's a, a long, this is a big question. But the, the, sh the shorter answer is they are based on the, the, the CFTC and SEC uh, whistleblower statutes are, are based on the False Claims Act. The main difference is they're not, you don't file in court, where in the, with the False Claims Act, you would file a complaint under seal with, in a court. Um, and, and likewise, you know, you, in, in a federal False Claims Act case or state one, you could move forward if the government doesn't choose to go forward. You, you, you're, the whistleblower can choose to go forward on its own on behalf of the government. Here, you just give your information to the CFTC or the SEC, and so that's sort of the end of the road. If they don't do anything with it, that's you know too bad, so sad for you. Right. Um, well, we have a question for our very, from our very own Wayne Abernathy, and Wayne asks, very interesting discussion, raises a number of questions. The one at the top of mind is whether whistleblower awards are taxable. That is, what the government giveth, does the government to some degree take back? Uh, well, I'm not a tax advisor. I have to say that. Um, but, but the answer is, yeah, as far as I can tell, um, yes. Uh, so $200 million award, a close $200 million award was taxable. Right. So, all right. Um, Christopher Aquilina has a couple of questions. Um, let's answer his first one. Congress creates whistleblower statutes through one legislative means or another. Should they now create a statute requiring said whistleblowers to be awarded if X standard is met. 
It seems somewhat disingenuous to tell people that they may receive an award, but only if some administrative agency feels like it. Should not be hard, that hard to determine who provides what information, whether said information is vital to the investigation recovery. Now, Christopher, this is a great question because I think this is a good opportunity to clarify um, you know, the, the view. I think David would have the view, and David, I'll let you speak for yourself, that, that it's, it is a mandatory process and it's not completely discretionary. I, I do think he had some contrary views in some quarters of the CFTC, so I'll let him address that. Great question. Yeah, it is a good question, and um, and and we'll see how this plays out and how the CFTC behaves over time, and the SEC too, for that matter. They're not, from our perspective, they're not supposed to have very much discretion if you check the boxes. So the main box being, if you your whistleblower brings forward uh, information that starts an investigation, it's pretty much per se. You, you know, if there's money that comes in, you. Your whistleblower is likely to get it because it starts the investigation, and that's pretty much objectively verifiable. The tricky part, which was our case, is when there's already investigation and there's some subjectivity as to how much the how much there was a contribution by by the client. That you know, I don't know how to. I, I agree with that. That should be allowed as a you know as to you could claim an award based on significantly contributing to an an existing. Investigation, but um, but it, it necessarily involves some discretion on whoever is arbitrating that, or the arbitrator for this for that decision is going to have to have to decide whether it was enough, how what's significant, that kind of yeah. thing. So so the core whistleblower claim itself is pretty much mandatory, but what you're noting is around the edges there is inherently a lot of discretion, and I think the last thing you want to do is end up in an Article Three court, right, in Court of Appeals, right? That's probably not where you want to be. It's really tough to be the article in the, the Court of Appeals because to this day, the you know the Court of Appeals still do give some deference to the agencies. They'll give skid, what's called Skidmore deference to to the SEC. I mean, the SEC has said that's what they just, that they're entitled to, which is a little bit um, more flexible, I suppose, than Chevron deference. But yes, um, they'll get, but you also don't have a record at the appellate level. So that's the that's that's the problem we always face is we want to develop a record and it's constrained at the administrative level. There's no district court. You're just straight up on appeal. What do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Can you do fact finding at that point at all? No, I mean, what we do is if you're going to contest and and this is even when you do the award application, you put together your record and you better hope that it's got it's complete because that's that's it. So an, another question we have, I'm not going to mention the name of this person because the person says, I do not speak for my employer in any way, shape or form. So don't worry, questioner, unless you want me to mention your name, in which case, just throw it in the chat window. I'm happy to mention your name. I won't mention who you are. Um, and the question is about extraterritoriality. In efforts dealing with foreign bankruptcy, for example, it is often expected that there will be a, quote, single point of entry, end quote, so that regulators going against a private party do so at the institution's home regulator. Should we expect whistleblowing to follow similar methods going forward, or should we expect to see what we got during the great financial crisis, um, where even internally in the United States, we had each regulator seeking to take their pound of flesh? I'm going to uh, respond to that practically, which is if a whistleblower comes to me and I see the opportunity to go to a foreign regulator, um, that and I think the CFTC or the SEC is also going to exact uh, a fine. I'm going to go to any regulator that's going to listen to me. Okay, great. So it's less single point of entry, and it's more just a practical, just a practical assessment. Multiple points. Yeah, I mean, as many as are viable. Yeah. But another practical point on that is, I mean, I don't, um, and I don't 
pretend to be an expert here, but in the, my experiences with, with these derivatives markets, it's usually just a few of these um, regulators. With some exceptions, it's usually just a few regulators who are, who are going to be interested. And it's generally concentrated in just a, a couple of financial you know, centers. Right. Sure. Sure. So naturally, it's not, even if it might be multiple points of entry, it's not infinite points of entry. It's just a handful. Perfect. Right. Um, all right. So then um, Samuel Wright asks us, Will federal employees who have information about wrongdoing in their agencies be reluctant to blow the whistle by contacting the inspector general if they think that they should be paid millions of dollars for their information? And then he asks, can a federal employee get a whistleblower cash award? And let me just throw on a, an additional question onto that. Um, can I get a whistleblower award? Ignore that I'm an attorney. Let's pretend I'm not a non-attorney because that complicates things being an attorney. But can I get a whistleblower word if I find out something bad happened? I don't talk to management. I just go straight to you. So can you answer all those questions together? Yes. Um, so a federal employee, it depends on the federal employee, but generally the definition of whistleblower excludes people who are involved in enforcing the laws, um, that, especially the ones that are at issue. There's a whole slew of, of People, federal employees who cannot be whistleblowers. I don't think it's complete, but it, but it pretty much will keep out, you know, those who, um, you know, those who have run across this at, in part of as part of their work. I don't know about the question about going to the inspector general um, and it, and whether there's overlap between doing that and going to the CFTC or the SEC. I, I don't really know enough about that situation. There may be times when you could do both. I don't know how often that would occur, though. Um, and I don't know what the incentives would be to not go to either. My experience with whistleblowers is they often internally complain. They don't have to, Gary. They don't. They can go straight to the CFTC. They're given credit if they do, um, although that's difficult. Um, but but they don't have to. But I, you generally find that whistleblowers have complained internally first. But and let me ask you, different. you have an employee, David, who doesn't go up the pull of command. Haven't they violated their duty as an employee? Not if they've gone to regulators. Not if they've gone to regulators. And and they have a good faith basis to um to assert that there's been a violation of some sort. There's a there's another practical reason why I would advise whistleblowers to go straight to the regulator, which is is that if they're going to be retaliated against their anti-retaliation provisions in the in the in Dodd Frank in the whistleblower provisions. Those anti-retaliation provisions only kick in if you're a whistleblower. And the only way to be a whistleblower is to file a complaint. So, and that's, that's based on case law. The Supreme Court has ruled that. And because of that, if someone comes to me and is at a job and says, I, you know, I want to complain internally, I might get fired. I'm going to say file a complaint with the CFTC first before you go internally if you're worried about getting fired so that you'll, so that you can claim retaliate, anti-retaliation remedies. Sure. Um, I have two larger questions. They're fantastic questions, though, so I want to get through them both, both from Christopher Aquilina. So I'm going to give you the first one, um, which is a bit of a fact pattern. So let me read it, but these are great questions. So how is it that the CFTC may make a recovery based on information provided by your client, but the CFTC can then block you from evidence and even the identity of the employees who may have performed the investigation? Where are the checks and balances if you cannot even get timely access to the information and identities you may need to file a civil case? Are you simply state anonymous 
or unknown as the names of the employees and then wait as CFTC drags out legal hearings for potential years until you get the identities of the people you need to interview to prove your case. I think Christopher wants to get hired by your firm. These are great, already great issues that are raised. I think, yeah, that, that would have been the opening statement of our appeal, which is we didn't have enough information to, you know, well, you know, it's look, I, it's to defend the CFTC, even though I don't want to, they, they, um, you know, there's got to be limits because there are always going to be people who can test and they need to streamline the process or else you could tie them up in knots for years and years with litigation. So I think that's, they're trying to tell a line between, um, you know, between creating enough of a record so that they can make it, uh, if, if, if there is an appeal, they can make a decision and not, you know, overwhelming their staff on this. Um, you know, it, they're always going to fall short when they're wrong. <laughs> that's the way it is. Um, and, and it was a, you know, real frustration when they, when they rejected us the first time. I'm sure it was, uh, just a final pointed, a little bit of a pointed critical question again from Christopher, how much of the resistance that you encountered from the CFTC is more a result from them having, of them having red faces because they failed at their job of oversight versus them not wanting to pay out such a large award. The amount of money was a lot, but the significance of it, and I think this is a very good point, is that someone was able to pull the wool over the eyes of the regulators to such a large degree. So is regulatory embarrassment an issue here, David? Or No, I don't think it was in this, in this case. Um, it can, I suppose it can be, but, but then it's, you know, that might also argue that they wouldn't go after, you know, the thing is whistleblower whistleblowers are, are, are generally given their, their money and their awards quietly. No one knows unless they're, you know, unless there's a big press release. So, so that you do, and it's not connected to the cases themselves. So I think there is some insulation from that possibility. Um, you know, I, there's, a, I think in our case, our appeal was successful because we were so right. And I think the CFTC was, might've been worried that they would have been red faced publicly in an appeal before the DC circuit. I want to say that, but, but in terms of the regular, you know, investigations themselves, I don't know how, you know, I, regulators want to take credit for the work they've done. They don't want to look bad. I don't, but I don't think there's a huge tension these days between whistleblowers and the regulators. David, after all this discussion, the question people really want answered is, how does a lawyer do a whistleblower award? Unfortunately, though, we don't have time to answer that question. Um, and I'm going to hand it over to Ryan. But thank you so much for your time today. And thank you to the audience for just fantastic questions. What a great discussion. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. It was an amazing discussion. And on behalf of the Federalist Society, I would like to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, for joining us and participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming webinars. Thank you for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.